When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Hans Wagenberg, historian of Japan and Penn State and the USA. Today I'll be talking to Robert Heiler about his edited volume, together with Harold Fuss, The Major Restoration, Japan as a Global Nation, which came with Cambridge University Press in 2020. I've read a lot from both Dr. Heiler's and Dr. Fuss' work on globalization, tea, economic history, heritage, and various other subjects, so it gives me great pleasure to have, to have the opportunity to talk to uh, Robert today about his work. Um, welcome to the podcast, Robert. Mind if I don't call you, if I call you Robert? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure please, to be here. Please, please call me, Ron. So as it's customary in, in the UMIX network, uh, my first question to you is, what, what brought you to this story? Can you tell us more about your own background uh, as well and what brought you to uh, bring together this amazing group of scholars and articles to this, uh, on the major restoration? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I guess a bit about me. Uh, I'm a historian of Japan. Uh, my first research was on early modern Japan, particularly foreign relations. Uh, and uh, I just published a book uh, about the history of Japan's export of tea to the U.S. And I was in the middle of uh, researching writing the tea book and uh, realized that there was a great opportunity ahead coming in 2018 with the 150-year anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. So that was the big impetus for me to start to think about First of all, number one, mounting some conferences um, that could be opportunities to discuss anew the Meiji Restoration, because at the same time, I realized it had been a lot of really great research, a lot of ways clustered around the 1968, and a little bit later, I mean, you have, uh, for example, uh, Beasley's book on the Meiji Restoration, and then later Conrad Topman's book uh, about the collapse of the Tokugawa Bakufu. Um, but after that time, there hadn't been as much research on the restoration. So I thought this is a great opportunity uh, and was fortunate to be able to uh, work with Harold Fuse at Heidelberg and then also Danny Botsman at Yale. And we developed the idea of having three conferences uh, about the Meiji restoration. And our goal was to have different focus at each one of those conferences. So the first one we had was at uh, Wake Forest, my, my university, in early 2015, and the goal was to, as much as possible, uh, look at the Boshin War in comparison where we could with the Civil War. Um, of course, uh, North Carolina being part of the Confederacy and uh, a loser part of that, we wanted to look at the comparison as much as possible. Uh, and and Harold's uh, conference that he convened in Heidelberg that same that summer of 2015 focused more on global history, and then. 
Uh, two years later, Danny Botsman convened a conference at Yale. It was much more in focus on social history. So that was the impetus to come to the, the project. And the book that we're discussing today was a combination of papers that were mainly presented at the Wake Forest and the Heidelberg conferences in 2015. Yeah, Danny Botsman also had a book in Japanese about it, right? If I remember yes, correctly. Yes, yes. And also uh, he co-edited um, with Adam Klulo a special issue for Japanese studies in, published in Australia, um, particularly about uh, history and memory related to the Meiji Restoration. Check it out. Thank you. <laughs> I, I knew about a Japanese book, but not a special issue of the Japanese studies. Um, so... Uh, maybe we just r- jump right in. Uh, my first question after reading uh, just from, from the start is I was thinking about this work in relation to other another book about uh, global, about major restoration and a global focus, uh, Mark Ravina's 2017 work. Uh, is this work you did? I mean, I guess you already answered a couple of this when you talk about the work of Botsman and others. Is this part of a bigger trend maybe to look at uh, major restoration in Japan through a global global lens. Oh yes, I think so. And uh, and to say we're we're working on this volume, the edited volume, around the same time that Mark was finishing up his book, Mark Ravina, and so his book um, was published in 2017. So we weren't trying to to talk to to Mark's book uh, per se, but I think certainly the idea that we wanted to, or two ideas that we wanted to challenge that have been the understanding of the Meiji Restoration was the idea of global as being the focus, the old story, if you will, the focus on Western pressure exemplified by uh, Perry's visit in 1853. And then also to challenge that still the legacy of many ways of these Meiji restorations, the start of modernization um, and based upon Western imitation. So we wanted to really outline a different way to understand global within the Meiji restoration. And I, I can talk about that more now, or if you want to yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that, that I As a follow-up, like I, I, I picked like a, because my question is more, what do you mean by global? So I, I have a quote here that is a collaborative study of the global intersection of the heart of major restoration challenges the idea of national formation process when express a progress, expected progression, which relates to what you just said now. I wanted you to, if you can elaborate on this, on the progression, but also on the global. I mean, what do we mean by global here? In our case, what really wanted to look at was global first in immediate ways um, and also contextual ways. And this, so the outside forces, what's happening within the Meiji Restoration. So an example of a contextual trend um, are the commodity, a commodity boom. And this was something that was outlined by Mark Metzler in his first chapter that we had in the volume and how important that was, particularly developing right in the middle of the 1860s. And so we have silk, tea, also whale oil, which is starting to peter off as a global commodity by the 1860s, but but it's still around, it's still important. And so those are the some of the context we're having, but also then the immediate, and it's say here, the, the immediate global impact, for example, the flow of Western weapons that are coming in and the advances that were made in Western weapons of uh, rifles and the like that were used in the battlefield from the 1840s and then coming to the fore and imported in Japan and influencing the events 
the wars of the 1860s. So that's the way that we wanted to look at global in this volume was, was that immediate and that contextual ways as much as possible. Yeah, and another word that come together with global, I think, uh, in Mark Meltzer's um, we use the word the use world, but it comes the the idea of conjuncture, right? So Mark Meltzer writes on a joke global uh, world conjuncture of 1866, um, and you see it throughout the book. Another in Harold Fuss article as well, uh, in others you talk about synchronicities, both in introduction and Harold's work and others. Uh, how does those synchronicities, especially I'm interested in violence. I mean, you mentioned the Boshin War and the Civil War at the same time. Is this a synchronicity? Uh, how, do you, how do you explain this and how does it challenge our idea of uh, national formation, which is the main idea, main task of the book, I guess? Well, I, I think I, I do want to emphasize, and I think there are the synchronicities of the 1860s, uh, which is a fascinating development, civil wars in the U.S., civil war in Italy, right, leading the state formation uh, and this around the same time, um, I'm not sure I, c- I can explain, you know, why why those things are happening all at the same time. But nonetheless, it is part of a larger trend. Um, but in the case of Japan, I think that certainly there's the the violence starting so much from the 1860s. Uh, it's not on the scale that we see in other parts of the world. But one thing we also want to do in the volume was not just uh, talk about events in the 1860s, then suddenly hit to the Boshin War in 1868, but really outline, uh, you know, the the impact that had, for example, of the events in Mito, um, you know, the, the the armed forces in Mito that are challenging their their domain rule, and then possibly marching on to Kyoto, and that's where Marin Ehlers talks about how this small domain was impacted by that. So seeing that that violence across those ways. So yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm sorry, I guess I'm sort of dodging your question about these, these synchronicities, um, explaining them um, across the globe, but, but I think it, just identifying them and discussing them and realizing that there is important. Yeah, I don't think you're dodging. I mean, you write those are on page seven, unexpected unities. I mean, I don't think you, purpo- you, you, you present it as something you can explain. I don't think uh, we can I mean, but you do make a really good case. You and the other authors make a good case on that there are connections, right? Economic connections, especially on the meta level, right? So Mark Meltzer wrote right about commodities and he shows very well the connection on the meta level. Uh, Harold was on the guns, right? That flowing back and forth, Indian, post-Indian rebellion, post-Civil War, uh, and all those flows of weapons. I mean, you do show, you do so show some connection, but I think some of it here is unexpected. Um but there are unities and connections. I think you, you do a good work in, in uh, you and the other authors do a good work in showing it. Um, I see two kinds of articles here. Some of them, like Marx, uh, Meritzer, and Harold, are on meta level, right? But then you have all those micro uh, micro levels, right? So Noah Wilson, for example, uh, you mentioned whaling, you write of Western whalers in Hakodate and interaction and work with Japanese whalers. This kind of cover both, uh, both lenses, right? Uh, he doesn't look at the meta-economic level, but in a micro level, also Ehlers that you mentioned, uh, the workers of Platt, they look at, um, sorry, I Platt, the first, just forgot the first name, Simon? Uh, Brian Platt? Yeah. Brian Platt, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Um, um, 
and um, I was very interested in, in this, like how global and lo- glo- like global and global entangled and, and intersect myself, because I see it a lot in the work that I did uh, with uh, Oleg Banish and Castles and others, other work that I did on the local and global, kind of skipping over the nation. And I want to ask, what do you think about this idea of this local and global entanglement, like the micro and and, and the macro, and what do you think we can learn from those shifting of the lenses, the historical lens? Well, I, I hope that that can be uh, one of the takeaways from the book. And just through two examples, again, you know, emphasizing coming back to the, the context of that global commodity boom, uh, I thought, you know, Simon Partner, his chapter, which is a lot of ways it developed even further in his book that he published, uh, I guess, in twenty. I forget when he published it, but uh, yeah, a good book that. about... I, I talked it already, so it could be that. Yes, yes. Yeah. But, yeah. but anyway, here is the story of, of, of a man who is, and I've forgotten if he was based originally in Guma, um, but here he was in his 50s and decides, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to move to Yokohama and see if I can make money on this silk boom, right? Realizing that this is silk that's going to be uh, exported in that way. And... Simon tells a wonderful story uh, about, you know, the ups and downs and the challenges phases here. But the fact that you would, you would want to stake your your family's business and your future on this foreign market um, was really says something about the age and telling about the age there. And the same thing in, in the chapter I wrote. And one thing that fascinated me was how much after the Meiji restoration that, these losers of uh, the Boshin War ended up in Shizuoka, ended up growing tea. Um, you know, samurai who had been proud and never involved in agriculture, but were returning to the land. And why are they there? Because in the 1870s, 60s, 1860s and 70s, Americans are demanding more tea. I mean, this is Americans and, and, and Brits, but most of the tea is going to the U.S. Um, and so... It fascinated me to think about how this played into this being the fact that there's that demand from overseas influencing these events in, in domestically. Yeah, it wasn't just any samurai that went there, right? You picked a very particular person, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, uh, the guy who killed. Sorry, the name escapes me, but I'm just like looking for my notes. <laughs> like, oh, right, right. Uh, no, yeah. I- I- Imai Nobuo, yes. Imai uh, Nobuo. And I was fascinated by him because he was somebody that had been a supporter of the Tokugawa. He had decided in in 1865 or 6 that he he was upset with things that were going on and he needed to go to Kyoto and join a a auxiliary police force. Um, And that's when he was involved with the the assassination of Sakamoto Ryoma. But then later he was involved in just about every battle, I think uh, every battle of the Boshin War uh, and surrendered uh, at Hakodate in 1869. So it was a fascinating story of somebody that hears this commitment um, it is, to, the, to yeah. the opposition to the, to the, toku, to the uh, new regime. It is, and it's kind of like almost a Forrest Gump of the 1860s. Right? The Japanese is, is is almost everywhere. Uh, anything important happens, right? Uh, yes, yes. Also, he kills Sakamoto Ryoma, uh, which is such an outstanding, like, really, I mean, 
of course we can explain it uh, with Chibi Ryotaro and everything, but it's just amazing how everywhere he is. Like everywhere you go, everywhere he stopped, you can see some kind of second material merchandise, right? Um, yes, yes. I, I saw it again in, in, in Hakodate. I was just in Hakodate recently and they had somebody built this stand of Sakamoto Ryoma and Hakodate. I don't think he ever went to Hakodate. But, oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I was just in Nagasaki and the same thing in Dijima. <laughs> a quarter of the store is not about Dijima, and, and, but you can buy a, a Sakamoto Ryoma a toothbrush, which, oh, why wouldn't you? <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Actually, uh, it's actually maybe uh, we can just kind of skip over, like talk a little bit about your own article, because I thought that your take and also the take of Brian Platt and other people is kind of um, the way I thought about post-major restoration was uh, through uh, books like uh, Major Restoration Losers, uh, Mike Ward and others. And this is a little bit of a different take. I mean, does, I mean Mike Ward also talk about reconciliation, but... Uh, this is a much, but mostly about the, um, you know, as the title of the book shows, major resident losers, right? About, um, about um, not quite how they reconcile, but also about like all the bad, <laughs> bad feeling that, that stayed and oppositional uh, forces within the, uh, the Tokugawa ex-Tokugawa loyalist. But reconciliation is a very big part of your book. Uh, and I'm going a little bit off script here, but why is that? I mean, something also I'm very interested in, but why do you, why did, uh, why do you think uh, uh, in your work and others, why is it so important to talk about it in this book? Well, I guess part of that came out of the, the aforementioned uh, conference in 2015. And again, we couldn't uh, go as deeply as I'd hoped to do some comparisons of the U.S. Civil War, but just you know, living in the South or living in the United States, I mean, indirectly, the the impact of the Civil War still has re- resonates today in, in our political discourse. And the Boshin War, just around the same time, yes, there's there's still you know legacies of it, but nowhere near as as distinct and and impactful as we have in the U.S. And so I guess that's where I really wanted to come at that and, and saw an opportunity um, to present that view of the Meiji Restoration because I, I was really shocked when I found out about these uh, people like Imai Noble, right, who it, it comes out later on in life that he was probably the guy that, that killed Sakamoto Ryom. He never, he never really, he always hedged his, he never really raised his hand and said, yes, I, I was the one who did it, but he was certainly part of the group. Um, and the fact that, that nobody tried to arrest him um, after that point and that he could live out his life, you know, die, die an old man um, after, you know, starting many different uh, new lives. He, he worked for the uh, Shizuoka uh, prefectural government for a time and also started a school. He was the, the mayor of the village. Uh, so he had a very long and productive life, productive society. Um, and that really surprised me. And, and the fact that there could be this um, welcoming is maybe too strong of a word, um, but of these opponents and actually think about what needs to be done to 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 help um the state move forward and if i could just one of the way that was intriguing to me is also how this merged with the fact of 
how in so many different parts of Japan around the same time, and this is Chizuoka, Tosa founded, and this is uh, coming into what's happening with tea, but also north in Sayama, north of, of Tokyo, where you had locals, um, many times, you know, wealthy elites that were really invested in saying, we got to, we got to give some money. We got to do some things to help our economy, our local economy grow and, and tease an opportunity here because there's this demand from overseas. Um, and so this wasn't happening just in, in Shizuoka. And as you invest locally, you can invest just not in, you know, the crops, but in the people as well. Um, and so that, that was one thing that really, that really struck me and, and thinking about that. And, and also, um, that the same, motive is in the background of what Steve Ivins talks about with the Tondenhei, these uh, soldier farmers uh, that were sent to Hokkaido around the same time that never really acted as soldiers. But of course, there were some of uh, that sense of, of new opportunities for uh, some of the groups that had opposed the Satsuma Choshu Alliance in the Boshin War. So I guess that's I hope I'm not too long winded in that. Oh, um, no, but just thinking about how actually... that, that plays out. I've toyed with the idea of doing some comparative work on between reconciliation and the US. I've, I'm working at this long, long-term project that will be in fruition. We all have them, right? Those things that are in back burner that one day mm. will will come to the front <laughs> right, of the line. Right, yes. But, uh, uh, at, but uh, the importance of daimyo, uh, local daimyo in local history and national and national unification after the Boshin War. I'm talking mostly about Sendai. And Date Masamune, um, um, and the use of his of his role in, in Sendai as trying to insert. This is I'm quoting Takagi Hiroshi here, also in this volume. I'm inserting those uh, those figures into the and those losing domains into the national history of sorts. And I see a lot of a lot of stuff that is really comparable about how elites in both the U.S. and Japan basically decided to reconcile and let's make money and build an empire. Basically, you know, it's insane. In, in both places, you see kind of the same move. And I guess the synchronicity that you talk about, and the fact is all this prosperity that comes from the change in global markets have a big, allow some of it, right? I, I, right, I right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's money to be made. So, <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, we mentioned Stephen Evenworks uh, on, on Samurai and also Platt is also touching on this. Uh, I want to move into Samurai Soldiers' military history. And it's something that I saw both in Harold Phil's work and also in Hoya Toru's article on military history. Um, they both argue, by the way, that guns, new technologies uh, really upend the social order. Maybe you can elaborate this and how does this feature into the Kokotokawa's loss in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's uh, particularly the point of uh, Hoya Toru's article, um, that he's somebody that's researched so thoroughly so many aspects of of the 1860s, the Boshin War, the military angle from it. Um, and particularly, as I mentioned earlier about, I was drawing on some of the things he, he mentioned in his article uh, about how the technology advanced so quickly in rifles and things in the 1840s and 50s of better um, a breech loading rifles that were used, and how before that, that the, in a domain military 
you could have a few rifles because they weren't as uh, influential in changing the consequences of a battle. But here we have these better weapons coming into Japan in the 1860s. And of course, the story is well told, um, wasn't as, as emphasized as much by Hoya, but how much that those weapons and the use of them effectively helped Choshu beat the, the Tokugawa in 1866 um, in that we might call a small civil war, right? That that's breaking out there. Um, but certainly the fact of how many in the Tokugawa realize that they need to have these weapons, but also realize the consequences to the status system, to the social order of which they are atop of. And if they mess that up, right, it's going to crumble and their rule will crumble. So I, I, it's, I, I think Hoya in particular points to a way of which there's a real understanding we can say are the stakes of globalization, right? In this immediate way, right? These, these rifles are coming in and we got to use them, but what's that going to mean for, for us, right? As, as rulers of Japan. And so as, as Hoya outlines that there's still this, even, even during the Boshin war is so surprising that some of these Togawa leaders just, they, they don't want to do it. They're just, don't, even when they, it seems an existential threat, this moment, they're, they're unwilling to change. So um, I, I think I'm so glad that we could have his, his chapter in the volume to give us those yeah, insights. It, it makes a very clear argument and, and show really this, this link between resistance to new technology and, and resistance to the changing uh, social order. Colin Jundrell made a similar argument in Samurai to Soldier, his book from 2016 or 17, I think it's it's a uh, right, right, yeah. It's for te- teaching in the past, but this is a much more compact, uh, um, compact, uh, uh, compact uh, version of this argument here. And and, and both I mean, Con- Condrill and and Hoya did do really good, very convincing, and making those connections. And also here you make the connection to globalization. It's very different though between the impact of global of global as uh, forces on social order in the military realm and an American realm, right? I'm talking, going back to um, the work of partner and others um, here, you can see much more continuity with American order, right? The way that it seems that American and Americans were much better adjusted uh, to those, to, to make those changes. Um, am I right in saying this? I mean, if, and if I do, if my, what can explain those different reactions of those two classes, right? Between samurai class and emerging class. Oh, sorry, you, you cut out there for a second here. I couldn't quite hear uh, the, were you saying the, the, the mercantile so you, order? You can see a destruction to this old order for the samurai class with those new technologies coming in, right? Uh, then with American mercantile class, you see much more adjustment, at least for some. If you see, again, I'm talking about someone partner work that we mentioned before, right? The, uh, there is an argument that I think it's within the book and it's almost, or uh, it's been, you know, it's pretty well established that, you know, that the mercantile order maybe didn't survive intact, but really proto-capitalism, right? Uh, the, the, the kind of proto-capitalism that was practiced in, in the Tokugawa era kind of flowed, I mean, not seamlessly, but flowed into post-Meiji capitalism, Um so there's two different classes, two different results. Uh, what do you think explain this? I mean, I don't know if you can answer, but... 
Yeah, well, I certainly I think that there is that openness, uh, if we want to use that word, if it's too grand, but to many of the merchants, to the opportunities that are available. And I think it's also telling, uh, or you know, mentioned about Simon Partner's article, but the fact of what Noel Wilson talks about in Hakodate and how there's actually a willingness of to allow Japanese uh, to go and work on ships, um, work on whaling ships and be recruited. Um, nobody's really putting a big opposition to it. And I, 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 it was really terrific. I think that Noel found that in one of these various treaties that are, that are signed. It was one in 1866 that allowed Japanese to be recruited and to work on ships. And she makes a point that these are some of the first, probably the first Japanese of the Meiji or no, they're not Meiji yet, but of the Bakamatsu era that are going overseas. Now, they're not going to the U S or something to study, um, but they're out there. And, and these are the people that come back and help influence the development of the whaling industry and other uh, maritime industries after that. So that's not to say a mercantile uh, per se, merchants per se, but there is that sense of, wow, we're ready to, to, to try something new. Um, but I guess to, to repeat that sense of what uh, Simon Partner showed, um, his betrayal of the, the merchant um, from Guna. I'm sorry, I should look it up here. I forget where he's from exactly, but they came <laughs> to Yokohama. Yeah. Yeah, it's... So, I don't know, because the way I looked at it is like everybody but the samurai um, that are infested in the old order, right? Even the samurai from Satsuma and Choshu are showing much more openness to the new opportunities, I guess, that's what you're saying. Yeah. So, um, all of this is shown by all these wonderful uh, case studies uh, of local local areas. But there's another cluster of work uh, in, in the book that uh, is much more about the national level, right? Uh, and I'm talking about work by um, Ravina that we mentioned before, uh, John Breen, Takagi Roshi that we also mentioned. Um, and those deals with also issues that I worked before, issues of heritage and the reinvention or emergence of a national idea of heritage and discovery of antiquity um, in Japan. Well, scare quotes, right? Uh, in the context of uh, the global rise of nationalism. Um, and the question here that this question almost always asks, like, was Japan here drawing on Western models in inventing Japanese-ness, or there's more here? Is it something that goes both ways? Uh, maybe another convergence or synchronicity? I'm thinking about stuff like Boy Scouts, for example, that Japan had. Uh, so my part, my uh, my co-author on the Castle Book, Oleg Benish, has been working on Boy Scouts lately. And in a couple of talks, he talked a lot about how uh, the phenomenon was influenced by Japanese models of, of education. So the question is how much back and forth there is, how much there is drawing on Western models here. Well, there's certainly both. And I, I, to come back to our key word we have here, the synchronicities, uh, I think that's certainly the case that Mark Ravina wants to present in his chapter about uh, money and the development of national paper money. Um, it's amazing I, the he bring the American... American money and and uh, and national Japan was almost exactly the same, right? Yeah, the, the fascinating the similarities and and how it's not simply an imitation of what the the Americans are doing. It seems to be around the same time of thinking, oh, we have to have number one half paper money. And if I can just pause here, I love telling my students about how the U.S. did not have a unified currency before the eighteen sixties, right? So it's a lot like Japan. I, I mean, as 
I probably assumed the same thing before I learned this, that, that there was a national currency in the U.S. starting with independence. Not the case. It's, it's a time developing in the 1860s, 70s, where it's realized that this is necessary. Um, and the fact that both Japan and the U.S. Uh, leaders there are deciding what national symbols and what ways to to add the stamp of, of the new nation state, uh, or certainly in the case of Japan, on things like money. In a castle um, book, we have this example where the Iwakura mission go and go to America and to DC and are very, very impressed by the idea of a national museum. But, in, but Smithsonian at the time was not even 20 years old. So it's not that, you know, it's new for in both places, right? So, yes. Yes, yeah. no, I mean, that's, and to, to say that there is more imitation in the case of what Takagi Hiroshi is talking about um, with the development of these national museums. And uh, it was brilliantly done in his, in his chapter to talk about how there's this creation of, of Kyoto as being the cultural capital Tokyo is going to be the imperial capital. And then just always stuck in my mind about how the fact that Nara was made this, as he said, a village, right, is made the place where you're going to put a national museum. Um, and now, of course, it it's a place of which if you're visiting Japan, you're going to go to Kyoto and go to Nara um, and, and see those national uh, symbols and things like that. And how that Japanese leaders, intellectuals at the time are drawing on the Chinese classical past in the same way that Westerners are drawing on the Greek and Roman classical past uh, in those same ways. It, it really is, again, it's, it, I'm so glad we could have his chapter in the article, uh, in, in the book, excuse me. Um, and then also John Breen's uh, chapter where he talks about the, the Meiji emperor and just some of the points about how much time the Meiji emperor spent being a diplomat um, that John realized in looking at the details about his days were full of meeting so many uh, different foreign dignitaries and, you know, what, what he would wear, or what he would do, what he would eat, those kinds of things. Um, and how there's that competition um, to getting certain types of of, of awards and how the uh, the Japanese are wanting to get the British, I forget it's the Imperial Garter. Oh, the, the Garter the, the, or something like this, right? Yes, yes. And the British are very, very clever about how they're holding it back, you know, keeping them wanting to get this award. And, and also at the same time, um, John mentions uh, in the ways of which the, Jap- the Japanese leadership, the Meiji leadership doesn't want to give awards and involve China and Korea. Um, yeah, that was, I was really shocked when, when he right there that it's the first time in 800 years or even a thousand years at one time that is, I don't remember the, the exact number, but it was like hundreds and hundreds of years. There was no like direct connection between the Imperial Imperial House in China or Imperial House in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then when they do it, they do it in Western terms, which is uh, right. And so, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. And it's also what I like about uh, John Braid's work is the fact that we talk about the Meiji Restoration, but we know so little about the Meiji Emperor mm-hmm. in it, right? So, yeah, it's it's really it's uh, it's really um, amazing article, amazing body of work. Um, um, I want to go back to the local, ever sure, yeah. Um, 
and especially about the work do you see the work on Kaido, but Steve Iving and, and Platt, but also in Marin Eller's work. Uh, all those local, all those like national processes, global processes have a lot of variation on the local level, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it goes back a little bit about the work we, uh, the question we had with Mike Vert and different areas reaction um, to the restoration. Um, so, and question is about how those processes of national unification um, and adjustment to global trends happen. So if Japan tried to position itself among nations, how was this process of reinvention was intervened dealt differently in various areas of Japan? Uh, half of which were on the losing side. You see it with, especially with, I, I like in Marin Ella's work about it, she saw that actually precedent was very important in how mm. you deal with warfare. That the first time in 300 years, suddenly you have warfare mm. on warfare inside Japan and people just go back to this precedent of the Sengoku, of the warring state period. So I wonder right. how you see it, uh, just different variations of dealing with the war and, and with national unification. Right. I mean, one thing that also struck me in, in Marin's chapter uh, about when there's this fear that they're going to have the band from Mito come into the domain, what's the decision made by the domain leadership to, to burn some of these villages because they think they might be, a, that might strengthen their defenses, right? So the commoners are just expendable completely in that case here. And so I guess we could make that comparison though um, with say the Tokugawa, um, this is what Hoya Toru talks a bit about how these nohe, right? The the commoners, the the farmer soldiers that are, are brought to the fore and then same kind of thing that, that um, Brian Platt surveys in his chapter. So the sense of, in some ways, and I don't want to say that there's any type of real equality, obviously, here, but in some ways, there is a sense of where some parts of Japan in this time of emergency are looking to include not just samurai, but a larger state ideal. And maybe that's too strong to say state ideal, um, but at least a unified ideal, right? A unified polity. That, that's a better way of saying it. Unified polity. Um, that certainly isn't the case that, that plays out in Ono domain that, that Marin gives us. So I guess that would be one way of talking about how the, the differences as it developed in the 1860s. And you think there's much more to it than just samurai? Because I'm thinking, again, I'm going off script here a little bit. Uh, from, um, so I think about Stephen Iving work and the way that um, maybe think about a little bit memory here, right? So uh, when Stephen Iving work about Hokkaido, he shows that we really focus on those samurai, uh, ton, Tondohei. Um, right. Let me speak it. Uh, but he actually, he shows how little, how small and, and almost insignificant and how different is the reality of this program than the memory of it. Was it, you think, maybe too much focus on samurai and samurai role? And I know you work on samurai, but, but maybe... What I get from here, there's the, the history and the role of other classes and other kind of people is much more significant than we previously thought. Yeah, I, I would certainly like to emphasize, and thank you for bringing that up about about Steve's uh, chapter, 
um, because he does make that point. It's an important point uh, about that it is commoners who are playing such a key role in the development of Hokkaido. And I, I would argue the same way that, for example, to come back to what I explored in my chapter about tea. Yes, I did talk about these the samurai and the losing side, about how they find reinvention uh, as tea farmers. But at the same time, in Shizuoka, for example, that you have an area, it's on the Oi River, um, and the Tokaido would go across the Oi River, but of course, this is close to Edo, so the Tokugawa had never wanted to build a bridge there. So there was a group of porters who carried people and goods across the Oi. Well, we get in the Meiji period, you want to have modernization, you want to build a bridge, get rid of this guild. There's locals, commoners, wealthy commoners, again, who say, we got to do something about this. We, we can't just let these people have no opportunity. So they're also given an opportunity to get land, seed money, and start growing tea. Um, and those those farmers are just as important as the samurai, the former samurai, in creating a tea industry in Shizuoka. So yes, definitely the commoners and their roles um, of course, right? The samurai are what six, seven percent of the population, after all, right? So we have to keep our keep our eye on what's really going on. Most of the people um, at the time, you know, of course, they changed their status loosely, right? When you get to the Meiji period, still commoners and still the former samurai status. Um, but yeah, I think if if that answers your question, I, I would certainly agree with you that the commoners we we don't want to be too samurai focused in, in what we're looking at. Yeah, I think. I mean, I have a samurai class, but uh, I'm almost reluctantly teaching. I mean, it's one of the most popular classes I teach. But uh, of course, because samurai, most people say Japan, samurai is like the second or third word after mm-hmm. ninjas and geishas or whatever. Or anime. Right, right. Uh, but they're, again, 6 7% of the population. And that's uh, but really, especially when we work on, on castles, which of course, castles are a place of samurai, but local history is so dominated when you read local history also. So dominated, uh, and also national accounts, dominated by samurai history. We totally forget the other 93, 94% of the population. So I was very happy to see uh, so much um, so much work on commoners um, and commoners' reaction here, because I think we need more of this. Uh, I want to, uh, before we, we're already in like the 40-something minute mark, and before we begin, I want to have one more, qu- before we finish, I want to have one more question. It's about, again, going back, to kind of the theme that I talked about before about what does this mean to the study of other um, other areas? Because, um, you know, I think you make a good case about how individual portraits, like the work of partner, Platt, uh, and Platt work on the those individual whalers that went abroad, original ones like Eller's uh, account of HSM. And it's quite clear how putting Japan in global focus can explain and elucidate what happened in Japan, both on local, national, regional level. But again, does it work the other way? Can we study if Japan could contribute to understanding of what happened other places? So how the reaction of HSM villagers to mountain demons to work on Mar and Elo's work reflect on what happens, let's say, in Yorkshire or Delhi? How can we? How can a non-Japan person read this book and what, what can he or she get from it? Well, thank you. That's, that's a great question. And it's something that I have thought about and to come back to one of the ways that I hoped in mounting a conference uh, at my home university and hopefully making some connections to the U.S. Civil War 
And perhaps as one takeaway would be for about how reconciliation was a much harder task in the case of the United States, right? Of course, that you still have in 1877, you know, have a compromise made where some Union troops that had been stationed around state capitals were moved back to the north, right? I mean, this is still, you know, more than a decade uh, after the end of the Civil War. Um, and sorry, 1876 is when that the, the compromise happens, right? So reconciliation is, is, is a much harder thing in, in the American case. And so by looking at the Japanese case, maybe there's something um, that you can have a, a new sense, a new lens, if you will, to look at things like the Civil War and its aftermath. I hope uh, one of the things that I was hoping we might have done more in this project was to make some comparisons what's going on in the 1860s and 70s in Italy and Germany. Um, and I have a, a dream at some point, I'd love to try and do some comparisons, particularly with Italy, um, and particularly some of the areas of which were incorporated into the Japanese state, uh, into the, the new Italian state, excuse me, um, around that time. And uh, at some point, it would be wonderful to, to, to have a, a conference or something about that, because I think there, there are just so many ways of which to make those kinds of comparisons um, to think about how this nation state ideal comes together um, in these three states in the 1860s and 70s. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's still, it's still a, a, a topic that fascinates me and I hope at some point I can look into it in more detail. It is fascinating because both those, all those cases were cases of places who have very, very strong regional identities and mm. they were cut up because people talk about late, late comers, late events, especially work on fascism and explain why those three, uh, I mean, I'm going to teach a class about fascism now. Uh, so this is kind of ongoing idea of, you know, late developers and stuff, but I think even more so what you, what this book shows and, you know, knowing German and Italian history, this from region, very strong regional identity to national identity in one generation. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. And I think there is a lot of place. I mean, I did some work, uh, I, did, I did an article on Wakayama that, mm-hmm. that shows a little, a little bit on the idea of Furusato and compare it to Heimat, Heimat in German, which basically mm-hmm. the equivalent. Oh, right, right. Yeah, so I think there's much more, uh, much more to be done um, on this. And uh, well, well, if yeah, I can and add... Uh... Yeah, of course. Oh, if I get yeah. just one more point, I mean, I guess in general, thinking about the major restoration, I guess after doing this project, and and I was fortunate to be involved with uh, a number of conferences um, that were uh, convened in around the 2018 150 year anniversary, um, and just coming away the sense of, and don't want to glorify the Meiji leaders um, yeah. because certainly what they did was successes they had were come on the backs of of working class people, particularly in the countryside. But at the same time, that sense of that willingness to take risks and to do something, to just start reform. And today we have in so many parts of the world, there's not that willingness to take a chance with a policy, right? To say that we've got a problem with our state. Maybe we need to try this. Let's do this. Let's go all in. And the the Meiji leaders do that. I mean, I'm still just amazed at the breadth and the audacity just to say, hey, we're going to change this all around. 
we're, we're going to get rid of the samurai class. We're going to get rid of the domains. We're going to do all this very quickly. So I think that 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 to me is also something. It's not as as a big of a topic in our book, but in general, why should we think about the Meiji Restoration again? That for me is is one of the reasons. Yeah, there's certainly a case of good good leadership. I mean, as much as this is not something we like to, <laughs> to and this is not something that is very popular to beyond popular history, right? To look at leaders anymore, right? Yeah, but yeah. There's certainly a case to be made to to look at them uh, again. Um, I want to end, uh, as we usually end here, asking what you're working on now. We talked a little bit about where you are right now, Asaikawa, in Hokkaido. Maybe you uh, can yes. tell us what you're working on and what's, and what's next for you, personally. Oh, well, thank you for asking. Yes, I'm, I'm just in, I'm fortunate to be on, on leave this year, and I'm based in Kyoto. Uh, and the question that I want to try and answer is why is Kyoto the center of traditional Japan, the center of bread bread consumption in Japan. Um, Because Kyoto and the Kansai area by far outpace any other part of Japan today in bread consumption. Um, And I'm in Hokkaido to learn more about Hokkaido history and particularly understand a bit more why uh, a place where you have uh, wheat and flour production, that the consumption of bread here is lower. And I plan to also go to Okinawa because Okinawa is surprisingly low, um, which as I'm, as I'm approaching this new project, I'm surprised that the most Americanized place in Japan uh, under U.S. occupation for many decades has a lower bread consumption than another part of Japan. So that's what I, I'm looking at. Um, I hope to answer that question, but it's uh, particularly trying to find, as I've learned, um, treads in Changes in trends in consumption can be very hard to to figure out what what makes those changes um, come forward. But searching for the answers is 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 very exciting for me. Thank you, and we're looking forward for this, and hopefully we can have you here uh, for work on bread as well. Thank you. Oh, that'd Thank be wonderful. Sharing, Thank you, sharing your time today. Thank you. Thank you.